The Himalayas have inspired music and poetry and spiritual focus. They've challenged climbers and adventurers to reach new heights. And they've stored ice, more than anywhere else on Earth except for the Arctic and Antarctic. That ice, those glaciers, have, for millennia, fed many of Asia's greatest rivers in China and India, Pakistan and Southeast Asia, helping to feed billions of people. But that ice is now melting fast, caused by climate change. And the melting of that ice is itself accelerating climate change, with the effects felt throughout the Himalayan region, including India. A rescue operation is underway in northern India after part of a Himalayan glacier collapsed into a river, sweeping away a dam and triggering huge floods. Well, we start with the heat wave that continues to batter India. Extreme temperatures across the north and the east of the country have caused hundreds of deaths. In the south, the searing hot spell has led to severe water shortages. They walk in intense heat, sometimes for kilometers in search of water. And before you knew it, the low-pressure area has become Cyclone Gulab and struck Andhra Pradesh. But guess what comes next? I think at least the people who are affected directly by the changes in the environment and the weather patterns, they are definitely convinced that this is unprecedented. These changes are unprecedented. They have not seen that in their you know, life. This is Anjal Prakash. He's been focused for the past quarter century on the effects of climate change on water and ecosystems in the greater Himalayan region. And he's here to tell you what it all means for billions of people who rely on waters melting too quickly now all around the Himalayas. This is the Colonized Podcast from Asia Society. I'm Mary Kay Magstead. If you go to colonize.org, you'll see dramatic photos of Himalayan peaks. It's part of a photo exhibition and event series at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., March 15th to April 22nd, 2022. But take a peek now. Go on. You'll see photos showing how Himalayan glaciers have shrunk and retreated. You'll see images of coal miners in China and around the world, and images of people struggling with the effects of climate change coal use and other fossil fuels being one of the big causes of climate change. Anjal Prakash has done a lot of thinking, writing, and research about all of this. He is the research director and an adjunct associate professor at the Bharti Institute of Public Policy at the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad in India. And he has thought about the tension and frustration that comes from developing countries like India trying to grow their economies and create better lives for their people in an era of climate change that largely they didn't create. India is the third largest polluter, but the per capita uh, emission for India is minuscule, actually, as if you compare with these two greatest polluters at this moment, which is United States and China. India's per capita carbon dioxide emissions are about a quarter of China's and an eighth of the United States. India is trying to grow its economy to help millions of people out of poverty. And all of this will need more energy. India does still rely on coal for more than half of its energy, but it's working on increasing its use of solar and other renewable energy, as U.S. climate envoy John Kerry recognized on a trip to India before the Glasgow Climate Summit in 2021. That India is getting the job done on climate, pushing the curve. You are indisputably a world leader already in the deployment of renewable energy, and your leadership of the International Solar Alliance 
promises to advance clean energy across India and other dynamic growing economies around the world. Great, Anjal says. So developed nations, show us the money that will help us make this change more quickly. What we uh, people, not only India, but you know, if you look at other countries in South Asia, Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they have to divert their development finance money to combat climate change. We know that a huge percentage of our GDP actually has to go in fixing the problem which we have not created. So South Asians and others in developing countries are calling for climate justice while they live with ever more disruptive effects of climate change. Anjal Prakash has been seeing it in his own work and writing about it in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's reports. That includes a recent special report on how climate change is affecting oceans and the cryosphere, which means basically everything that's frozen, the Arctic, the Antarctic, and mountain glaciers like those in the Himalayas. Uh, Himalayan glaciers actually contributes to 10 major rivers in the entire Asia. So glaciers are very, very important ecosystem that we must protect. Under the global warming, uh, what is predicted that the bis- same business as usual scenario, two-thirds of the glaciers will be actually declining by end of the century. And some of this declining rate actually is much more faster than what the models are predicting already. That is a, probably a long-term understanding. But for the day-to-day issues, what we see is a huge change in the weather patterns, which is impacting the Himalayan regions especially in terms of precipitation changes. The total average precipitation or the rainfall has not changed over a period of time, but there is a huge variability in rainfall. That means when you want rains, the rains will not come. When you don't want, it will just pour. And uh, that means that the downstream areas get flooded, the you know midstream areas get flooded. There's a huge uh, loss of life because sudden changes happen. And, he says, such effects of climate change, along with droughts, floods, fiercer cyclones, rising sea levels, and dwindling catches of fish and seafood in warming oceans, disproportionately affect the poor. The farmers uh, are under huge stress. There's a lot of farmer suicide which has been reported. Uh, farmers protest also, as uh, as you may have seen, that has made headlines in India. It's partly also because the agriculture system has been very, very prone to climatic disaster. The rice and the wheat farming has been affected. It's a slow onset, but it is definitely being very, very severely going to affect us in future. But now also food production has been reduced quite drastically. So something like a decade ago, you were looking at water use by farmers in Gujarat. And one of the issues you were focusing on was overuse of groundwater, because farmers could just dig wells with low rates for electricity to bring it up from a low and sinking water table. So a crucial issue for India, for many of us, as climate change intensifies, is availability of water for agriculture, for rural people's own use, and also to channel to expanding populations in cities. That's a lot of challenges all being faced at once. So for starters, what's being done to modulate groundwater use in places like Gujarat? You know, the stark reality is that the groundwater uses has gone up tremendously in India. Groundwater development has happened in a very private sphere. That means you can sink a bore well and uh, you know access water and uh, supply it for your your needs as well as as well as you can actually sell it. And that's why the groundwater markets have developed very uh, efficiently. I would say in India, where uh, at least the management has been very good, and Gujarat has been one of the pioneers in that. But what has happened over the years is that it has depleted the water supply, going down 
down and when the water levels start going down it leads to salinity uh, fluoride uh, and some a lot of other uh, nitrate issues have also come up uh, that has also led to a lot of health issues in many many parts so over development of groundwater is not uh, something that the policy should be encouraging and that has been there so this has happened in the context of declining surface water systems the large scale so the during the britishest time that many of these uh, large scale irrigation system has been developed and maintained later but uh, this has also some limitations and that's why the groundwater boom has built up from that one so then what's the government doing to ensure there'll be adequate water supply, both for urban and rural areas? There has been a lot of policy regulations in terms of groundwater uh, management. And I think Gujarat is one of the pioneers, again, where they have actually separated the grid, uh, which uh, would feed into uh, the agriculture system as well as the domestic household systems and all that. And uh, there has been some experiment which has actually rested for the decline of groundwater. But Punjab, for example, has not done that. There's a free water supply and then free electricity to offer accessing groundwater. And that's why a huge problem of water, groundwater development and salinity in Punjab has been also reported. Uh, what we need actually is a little more coherent policies. And then a lot of move has been by activists saying, because water is a state subject in India. And they're saying that you now have to bring it into federal uh, subject, which uh, can regulate uh, the entire India based on that. There has been debate around that and for and against. But uh, I think in the wake of climate change, you need to have a lot more research which is done, which looks into the linkages of groundwater in the context of changing climate to look at the sharper linkages in the future. How much has the water table dropped in some of these places? Okay, so I'll give you an example of, uh, you know, uh, Gujarat, where I was doing my field work and I found that there was this uh, um, Ahmedabad-based uh, scientific agency called Physical Research Laboratory. And they took a sample of water. People have gone down to 2,000 uh, you know, feet below to access water and they found out that the water that they were using was about 5,000 years old. So people have actually gone very deep to access water. Uh, Punjab also has a huge problem, but uh, Gujarat is more a drier state. Punjab has a lot of rivers and uh, the surface water is better. Still, they have problems of salinity because as you're overusing the groundwater, salinity increases, uh, the land becomes saline and becomes unproductive for long period. These issues are coming up. So farmers have a lot to contend with. They're having to dig deep for a reliable source of water, but then they're also dealing with all of this weather where the rain is dumping down at a time where it's not helping the crops so they don't have a successful season in terms of raising enough crops so they can make a living. So some of them are just going to give up and move to cities, right? Um, there is a pull to urban areas where you have other kinds of jobs without quite as much uncertainty and hard labor. So you've looked specifically at urban water use as well as rural water use. What happens when you get a large flow of migrants coming from the countryside to the cities? You know, how much how much more water is needed? What are the new challenges in India? You know, India is being a very vast country and there are different ecologies. There are different uh, levels of problems in each of the ecologies. And I'll give you one or two snapshot of what is uh, you know happening. For example, the mega cities like Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta, Chennai. Water is uh, one is that you have to rely totally on groundwater. A lot of groundwater uses in the urban areas. Second is also you have to source water from the rivers which is actually not in their watershed. So water comes from some other places and because cities are places also where rich people stay, there has been a transaction of water, rural water versus urban water. So the place where I stay in Hyderabad in South India, the city started uh, developing very fast because of the 
uh, uh, IT companies who has come and settled here. And because of that, a lot of migration of uh, skilled uh, people coming from other parts of India has people have come Bangalore and Hyderabad, the two places where a lot of people have migrated. So uh, there are two, three things which has happened. One is uh, that you have gone further to access your water. Uh, so there is a water market. Get, say, you get the water in, in, in the form of a tanker. Cities also, you have to source water. And then there has been a huge uh, a conflict over water between rural water and urban water because uh, it's the cost of the rural water that your urbanization has uh, been fed into. And on the top, you have climate uh, change. Now, what climate change has done is, for example, some of the cities get just flooded. Mumbai, for example, Three, four times in a year, you'll find that there is an incessant rain and an entire city gets flooded. When the city gets flooded, um, you have drainage source which has uh, not been equipped to handle this much of water. The city goes standstill. So imagine a city like Mumbai, for example, goes standstill for a three days or four days. The loss of economy is huge. So what I have been telling that, you know, we have to really work on climate resilient infrastructure be it road network, be it uh, uh, electricity networks or water supply and drainage system. And that is a major challenge because cities are growing up without much of a planning in India. And then you are only coping up with the new influx of people which is coming from different parts of India. Planning is something that that has uh, been deficient in India. And that is uh, one of the major issues. And that hasn't really started to turn the corner yet. That's exactly. So So it is like a knee-jerk solution. So you have a problem, you fix it tomorrow, but then day after tomorrow another problem comes up and you don't know how to deal with that those problems. And also the large population that you have, any planning that you have to do will affect people. So how do you uh, make the city not affected by the day-to-day construction process or anything that you do with the city at the same time, keep up the sanity of the city and keep the city going? That is something that's a huge challenge. That's only about, uh, you know, class one and class two cities. But the class three and class four cities are cities which is still being built up. I think that's something that if we focus on those areas and we are trying to work with the climate resilient infrastructure in those areas, but that means huge resources. You need to double and triple your money that you have allocated for building up a city. And that is something that uh, the cities have to really decide how is going to cope up with these things. Either you have put in this much money so that you have your infrastructure at least is coping, adapting and coping with the changes in the climate, or you just leave it like that. And uh, most of the time, it is the other way around. And that's why we are always dealing under one crisis or another. So that's on the reacting, adapting side. How much do you feel can still be done by Himalayan countries, including China, to prevent additional melting of glaciers in the Himalayas? Yeah, I think one thing which we have, uh, I have been telling this for a very long time is the regional cooperation. We need to the countries of the Himalayan who are sharing the Himalayan resources. There are eight countries, but there are people who are also outside who are interested. They need to come together. There are a couple of things that can be done immediately. And then, uh, you know, one is definitely about sharing of information and data, right? So, uh, you know, uh, you understand that China and India, India and Pakistan, the relationships are not that smooth. So even the small amount of trust is not there to share the data, the information that you have. What happens in China will affect India. What happens in India will affect uh, the other downstream countries. So we are all interlinked. We are part of one world. Uh, We need to have more trust and more regional cooperation so that we can get this together. Now, I understand that India has its own concern because, you know, uh, you have seen the kind of terrorism India has faced uh, from across the borders. Uh, there are expansionist economies around the corner. So you have to deal with this uh, day in and day out. A quick side note from me here as a former Asia correspondent. 
High in the Himalayas, China and India have had a tense standoff for more than half a century. They have an undemarcated border, and there they fought an actual war in 1962, in which China seized control of territory that India had considered its own. There was another clash a couple of years ago, where China seized more territory. China's also building roads leading right up to that undemarcated border. And in the part of Kashmir that Pakistan controls, but India also claims, China is also building roads and dams and more. It's part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is you know building infrastructure around the world, binding recipient countries closer to China, and gaining geostrategic advantage with many of those projects, including those in Pakistan and Kashmir. As for Pakistan itself, well, India's tensions with Pakistan go back 70 years since Pakistan first broke off from India and became its own country, and that can make cooperation challenging. So regional cooperation, it looks very good uh, in, in the papers that you must have. How do you achieve that unless everybody comes together? So that's one problem that I always feel. But I think there's no other go than to cooperate because otherwise it's a shared resource and we'll go to lose most of it. Uh, and everybody will be affected. That's one. It's like a tragedy of commons that we have, you know, so the usual case uh, which happens and then how do we come together? Uh, second is we uh, most of the rivers that we have in South Asia are transboundary rivers. You have big rivers like Indus, uh, Ganges, Brahmaputra. Most of the rivers are transboundary. That means they share more than one country's boundaries. And that means they also have to come together. So it's not only about the glaciers, but it's also about the river management system. What happens, uh, for example, if there's a huge rainfall in Nepal, it will flood uh, half of uh, Bihar, which is in the downstream state of India. And this has happened every every year. And so we must cooperate to start with, can share the information, the data, and then come together as people and as countries uh, to save and pull in the resources. So the Himalayas are just one mountainous region in the world where glaciers are melting. And all told, about 10% of the Earth's land is covered by glaciers or ice sheets. And, and lots of people live in high mountainous areas, almost 700 million people at the moment. So the kind of cooperation you're talking about is needed in many places. How is that going outside of the Himalayan region? The Arctic example of cooperation in the Arctic region has been much better than what we see it in the Himalayan region. I think there's more maturity uh, for people, countries and organizations to come together to save Arctic. I guess we need to have a similar uh, process also in South Asia, especially to save the Himalayan glaciers. Uh, that is one example that we could see that started actually with the uh, UN-based organization, which pulls in the information and data together. If you look at South Asia, especially the countries which is affected by the Himalayan glaciers, there are three things which we need urgently. One is that better early warning system because of the nature of the you know river that we have, a transboundary river, that means more than one country has to come together and collaborate with each other so that upstream and downstream people are connected through the information that we have. That's number one. Second is that we also need uh, institutional innovation in tackling with the disasters. You see that the disasters are occurring every day and we have a similar economies. Uh, what I do here in India, uh, I 
may learn something from Bangladesh, which has done very well in flood management or cyclone management system. Similarly, Pakistan has many experiments that probably we can learn. So this kind of exchange of knowledge system, uh, innovations in tackling disaster, understanding is very important. And third is what I would say the resilient livelihood practices. The entire subcontinent had a very uh, resilient agriculture, which we have actually, knowledge has been slowly evading. Uh, we need to come together because that's the only way we can actually uh, save our uh, agriculture because that has been there from the long time, the knowledge system which is there, which we need to protect. You've devoted your career to looking at climate change and its effects and what needs to happen to make sure we all have the water we need as glaciers and polar ice melt. What keeps you up at night? What worries you most about where we are now and what we're doing and not doing? And what is the best case scenario when you think about people moving in the right direction? What worries me is the lack of international cooperation. I have watched the COPs very closely, have been participating in some of the international debates around this one. And I see that there's lack of consensus for uh, leaders of the world to come together and save the planet. The leaders have to own up. Countries have to own up uh, responsibilities and come forward and be more uh, pragmatic and more uh, giving in that nature. That's the thing which is worrisome for me. But what I'm really positive about is the innovation part. The agency uh, of people, I have a huge faith in, in, in people's agency. I feel that we'll come out of this crisis at, uh, you know, some action which will be taken by people, collective action or individual action. So I, I see that the uh, next uh, 10 to 15 years uh, will be a year for innovation, uh, will be a time where people will be innovating and also finding the solution within our own society. We don't have to look up to uh, people from the you know northern countries to even for technologies. I think there's a lot of innovation which is happening. Small technologies are coming up to combat uh, certain uh, problems. For example, flood protection programs, right? Uh, accessing water supply, uh, bringing water supply to the poorest, the poor. Huge program has been rolled out. And I see that a lot of uh, new generation, I think our generation has failed uh, to protect the planet. But the next generation is much more aware I know my own daughter is very, very aware of how much water we are using, what electricity we are using in the house. And that has been also because there are a lot of curriculum changes which has happened, making people aware of the consumption pattern that we are living in and how we can be more sustainable in our lifestyle. So I have a huge uh, respect for the newer generation, the young generation in bringing innovation so that we can combat uh, climate change through new technologies and also in changing the lifestyle in which we are living at this moment. So consumptive lifestyle, we move away and be more closer to nature. I think that's something uh, I'm very hopeful about. That's Anjal Prakash in Hyderabad, India, where he directs the Bharti Institute of Public Policy at the Indian School of Business. He's also an adjunct associate professor focused on water systems and how they're affected by melting glaciers throughout the Himalayan region. You may have noticed the different guests on the Coal and Ice podcast in India, in the UK, in South Africa, have all said that while we face an acute climate crisis, the focus and understanding of the younger generation on climate change gives them hope. We at Coal and Ice share that hope. Our photo exhibition and event series at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., March 15th to April 22nd, welcomes school groups and has activities and events meant to inspire and engage young visitors. Visit colonize.org to learn more. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find it. 
The Colonized Podcast is a production of Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, where Orville Schell is director and I'm associate director and editor and producer of this podcast. Our assistant producer is Ty Lee Nee. The Colonized Exhibition's curators are Magnum photographer Susan Mizalis and Dutch exhibition designer Jeroen de Vries. Next up in this bi-weekly podcast series, how climate change is affecting biodiversity around the world and why it matters. Come on back and listen in to the Colonized Podcast.